patients want time with the longitudinal relationship-based clinic or provider that knows them, cares for them, that builds trust together, that has time to make a diagnosis, that has time to, yes, deal with, you know, a toenail issue, but also deal with depression and also deal with a complex new diagnosis of cancer. Providers want time to do the same thing, build relationships, make complex diagnosis, coordinate care. That's the voice of Asaf Bitton, our guest this week on Review of Systems, and I'm your host, Audrey Provenzano. Dr. Bitton talks with us about what he sees as crucial steps in improving primary care in the U.S. and what we can learn from primary health care systems globally, particularly drawing on recent health care system reform in Costa Rica. Dr. Bitton is the director of primary health care at Ariadne Labs, where he leads the Primary Health Care Performance Initiative, a joint effort with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the World Bank, the WHO, and the Results for Development Institute. He's also a senior advisor to CMS on their comprehensive Primary Care Plus initiative. He practices primary care in the Boston area. Check our website, primarycare.hms.harvard.edu, and click on ROS Podcast at the top to learn more about Asaf, links to some of the papers we discussed, and see an archive of our old shows. Thanks for listening. Asaf, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's really nice to be on with you. I'm going to tell an an anecdote of something that happened to me in clinic recently, and I'm going to ask you to comment on it. So I saw this patient. uh, They had a history of cancer, and they just had a really complicated life, stopped coming to treatments and appointments, then showed up about six or eight months later, was lost to follow-up. But he showed back up in my clinic. The PCB had since left, so I was seeing the patient. And, you know, really a top priority for both of us was to get the patient back to cancer care. So... It was like my first appointment of the day, so I sent a quick email before I even wrote the note to the oncologist just saying this patient showed up, you know, we want to get the person back in. I didn't check my email again until the end of my session, maybe three or four hours later, and when I did, there was this like whole string of emails. The oncologist replied and said she'd since left that practice, put the new oncologist on the email, recommended some labs and imaging, then they put a bunch of other admin people on the email, and by the time I got to the bottom of the string of emails, the patient had an appointment and two days for a scan and labs, and then th- the next day, an interpreter and the oncologist, the new oncologist. And all of this happened, you know, in three or four hours. And I can tell you, having worked in several settings in primary care, it has nothing to do with where I've worked, the people I work with. I just don't see this kind of care coordination and efficiency happening in primary care. And I don't understand why. Are we not utilizing and deploying our HR in the best way? Is it a question of training? Is it insufficient resources? Is it a systems issue? Maybe primary care has just such a wide and diverse set of tasks and processes, it's really hard to delegate the way specialty clinics can delegate. Yeah. Well, my frustrating answer would be it's all of the above, but let's, let's take, take each area and sort of parse it out a bit. As we know, practicing primary care or trying to procure primary care when we're in the patient or family mode, primary care is an interrelated set of functions that we can describe. Those functions are around access and continuity and coordination and comprehensiveness and person-centeredness. And it's not like those functions are in and of themselves individually unique to primary care. Lots of other disciplines in healthcare have parts of those functions, oncology, you mentioned, but it's others. But it's only primary care where all five meet together. And that gets to 
only we in primary care have the mandate to be able to iterate and offer those functions simultaneously for diverse populations of people in their communities when they need it. And so it gets to your third issue, which was the systems issue. It's not just the comprehensive service line that we're offering. There are lots of comprehensive things that people do. It's that we're trying to, in somebody's words, we're trying to be a general store for a general group of patients. And when we have, you know, uh, an average of a thousand diagnoses a year that we're seeing, um, any number of procedures, huge variety in the psychosocial backgrounds and socioeconomic status of our patients, and the basically the possibility of anything and everything coming to bear, it gets us to a point where we move to the HR question. So are we staffed and paid for the right ways to perform this incredible mandate of tasks? And I would argue very strongly that we're not. You know, not only do we occupy in the U.S. a very slim part of the healthcare spend, but we have not been a priority for investment in the types of very complicated and very highly training intensive team-based mechanisms, especially around improvement and offering integrated services. Those are not things that you solve just by hiring two extra MAs or a nurse care manager. Those are decades-long processes that surgical teams and oncology teams work for, train for, and are funded at much higher levels. And then it gets to this, I think, what was really an interesting question as well that I, that I think you're hitting at, which is, so many people know what they want in primary care, so why isn't it happening? And, yeah. and you know, some people bring that up, the burnout issue. And, and I, I mean, of, of course, I agree burnout's a huge issue, but burnout is a symptom of the larger issue, which I would, I, I would identify as time. Yeah. This, this dimension of time, patients want time with the longitudinal relationship-based clinic or provider that knows them, cares for them, that builds trust together, that has time to make a diagnosis, that has time to, yes, deal with you know, a toenail issue, but also deal with depression and also deal with a complex new diagnosis of cancer. Providers want time to do the same thing, build relationships, make complex diagnosis, coordinate care. But billing systems and organizational structures only value one unit, one metric, which has historically been visits. And now maybe it's visits with a smattering of, you know, care management fees, but we all know that that's not enough. And so, in its extreme, what we're seeing people do and things happening in the primary care system is that if the, if the primary care system cannot evolve to meet people's needs, then there are market opportunities and people with the means to pay for getting their needs met. And I actually think that explains a lot of the trends towards retail clinics and concierge services. Mm-hmm. We could say, oh, that's really bad or that's inequitable. I agree it's inequitable, but it makes sense to me. It's a market failure on our part. We haven't been able to provide this relationship-centered care for all the reasons that you articulate in that vignette, and yet people will go after access to a retail clinic if we can't offer it the next appointment within six weeks, or they'll, if they have means, go after a a small panel-sized relationship-focused doctor who will take your phone calls on her cell phone. And we have to really think about what that means about our inability to offer what people value most. 
Right. So relating to a lot of this, you wrote a really wonderful editorial in the Annals of Family Medicine a few months ago calling for a parsimonious path forward in primary care transformation. And uh, you, in, in making your argument, you talked about advice that you give to patients about their diet, kind of based on Michael Pollan, who says something like, uh, eat real food, not too much, mostly plants, I think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and you transliterated that over to primary care, build whole change together, pace yourself, focus on what matters most, and practice quality improvement hygiene. Tell us a little bit how you how you came up with that and a little bit more about what you think it means. So I've been working in the space of primary care transformation, facilitated change, you know, for over the last decade. Um, first at um, and continue primarily as a clinician um, with an opportunity to build a, uh, a medical home from the ground up about 10 years ago at Brigham and Women in South Huntington, Jamaica Plain, Massachusetts. And that was really an eye-opening attempt to try to put a lot of these practices and research findings into reality, serving a very um, diverse uh, community uh, with um, given our proximity to the hospital, high both medical and, and psychosocial burden, we're really thinking through if, if you have this amazing opportunity to build a de novo practice, how would you build it? And more importantly, how would you build the conditions to be able to continue to iterate? Because by definition, you're not going to get it right the first time, the tenth time, or maybe ever. And, and, and out of that experience, and certainly not saying we've figured out the magic formula, but we've tried to build a learning culture and a team-based responsive culture. Um, out of that experience came experience running learning collaboratives at academic medical centers across Boston, and then time where I continue to this day um, as a senior advisor to the Innovation Center at Medicare around large federal medical home payment and delivery redesign initiatives called the Comprehensive Primary Care Plus Initiative. So I've thought a lot for the last 10 years and had a wonderful set of colleagues to throw around ideas on what are better models of practice change. And, and, and I'm, I'm a kind of convergent person. I try to think about things like what is the simplest possible distillation of a complex set of ideas Mm-hmm. that can easily explain to and have valence to a wide variety of people and stakeholders for a problem. And then once you can boil it down to its essence, you can do that complex translation to the important contextual diversity and variation across all the country and all the world. So it's this attempt to say, like, what is core about practice change and moreover facilitated practice change. What do we know about what works and doesn't work? This article happened to be in response to learnings from a, another large federal initiative called Evidence Now to change primary care practice around cardiovascular disease. But really, you know, what I tried to do, like what Holland does with food science, which is just distill it to its core essence and then the, the variety and the adaptation is, in the, is, in, is at the edges, is try to say well, gosh, there seem to be like four things that always stand out. Um, first, you know, this idea that when we're working on practice change, we have to work on large-scale change holistically. And what I meant by that was this idea that 
I mean, it's fine to focus on like improving widgets of diabetes care or widgets of screening this or, or other important but very limited areas. But if we want long-term sustainable change to happen, we have to, as a community of providers and implementers, think about how to come together both as entire practices linked to our communities that we serve and ideally, the evidence would suggest links to regions or systems or larger communities that are trying to change together um, in a facilitated way and, and, and really focus on large-scale culture change and large-scale outcomes, you know, mm -hmm. uh, things that affect people's lives, their morbidity, their mortality, and cost and their experience. Mm -hmm. Second, that even though we think big, we have to pace ourselves. So we, we have to have this big holistic target on the wall and engage a multiple variety of stakeholders, but we pace ourselves to do this in an order, and the order seems to be something around starting with engaging our staff and leadership, impaneling our patients, moving towards team-based care, and then some of the other really important functions and processes. The third is that we want to keep our eye laser-like focused on what matters most, and what I meant by that is, again, what really causes the burden of disease or or the burden of less health or, or lack of health in your community and focusing your initiatives on those big things, um, behavioral health, substance abuse, cardiovascular disease, cancer screening. I mean, there's so many good things that we can do in primary care, but we do have to focus our change efforts on at least initially what matters most. And then finally, to do all of this work, we have to have a message and we have to practice regular, what I call quality improvement hygiene, this mm -hmm. idea that you know, I don't really care if you have lean methodology and another one has the IHI improvement model and the third one has different. It's some structured, regimented way of meeting regularly, defining roles and responsibilities, looking at data, involving all staff and patients in the change, some tried and true processes that we know can help us sustain the work. And then finally, we have to be able to pay for all of this. That's sort of how I ended the, yeah. the commentary. Yeah. So specifically relating to finances, you, you write about payment. You say that oftentimes when we describe fee-for-service, we say it's misaligned, and you say that's actually a misnomer. You write, there's simply no way that modern primary care practice can achieve team-based functions under current fee-for-service payment or even marginal PCMH monthly additional payments so common across primary care. This is more than opinion. This is mathematical reality. And you allude, you link there to um, some work you've done with colleagues at the Center for Primary Care and also at Stanford. If these additional payments are so insufficient, what should we be what should we be doing? How can we convince stakeholders with such huge financial stakes in the current system to move away from fee for service in a meaningful way? Well, I think it starts in, you know, my language is intentionally strident here mm -hmm. because I do feel, if we take a step back, I do feel like we're often really good in primary care at, at sort of diagnosing systemic factors that inhibit our ability to, to, to do the primary care that we want to do or to be the providers that we want to be. But we're often, uh, I think, unfortunately, a little perhaps timid as a community about advocating stridently with facts behind our sales, yeah. <laughs> you know, facts and wins behind our sales yeah. about what's true. And so part of what motivated our work is to, you know, there's long been this notion that you just can't really pay for all the things that you articulated in your earlier question about, mm -hmm. you know, the, 
the reason oncology practice can have that all tied up in a bow in six hours or less is because, you know, if you look at oncology reimbursement models, they can afford to have all of those services and they have a financial, um, um, you know, uh, wind behind their backs to, to, to do so, to get patients in. You know, you, if you ask most primary care providers of all stripes across the country, they struggle to just keep the lights on mm-hmm. and their margins are really low, especially with all of the new requirements and, and, and things that are on their um, ticket items to do. So what we wanted to do is just simply sort of prove what I think we all felt in the primary care community, which is that, you know, and there were those famous papers, like if you did everything that you should do in primary mm-hmm. care plus ear and care patients, you would have to work 22 hours a day, right? Yeah. So what does this translate to financially? There is simply literally no model, and we did hundreds of thousands of simulations here. There's no model under which, you know, and this is kind of a realist-based model of, like, how primary care practice finances work, there's no way that we could find mathematically that you could pay for doing all this minimum package of team-based care and not lose money. Mm-hmm. You either didn't do the, the services, got them at a rate that we could find doesn't exist in the market today, or you, you basically go underwater. Mm-hmm. And so I just think, and you know, the editorial that accompanied the article kind of said, let's just put a nail in the coffin around the idea that fee-for-service you know, as is, you know, without major bumps in, in visit codes or without major augmentations can actually pay for the changes that we want to pay for. And I think that we, quite frankly, need to have that very clear discussion with the stakeholders and the organizations with which we work in, with the, the state and, and federal, um, you know, uh, health policy stakeholders and really say, like, we know that you're, we're your friendly neighborhood primary care community, and we know that sometimes we haven't made the loudest shouting and, and haven't advocated for ourselves um, as effectively perhaps as other specialties, but we want you to understand we cannot continue to function in the ways that we want to, our patients want us to, and you want us to, to provide the value to the system unless very significant payment change occurs. Right. And that's why it's not like, it's not misalignment is like, oh, you know, if only things could be tweaked and just twizzled in the right little way, then (laughs) those primary care people would be happy. We're not talking misalignment. We're talking fundamentally maladapted, like not working, not, not able to cover expenses. Right, right. Okay, so I want to shift a little bit. I know you do a fair amount of uh, international work, both advising and doing research in health systems and other nations about how to kind of develop and implement and improve primary health care. And last year, you published uh, with some of your colleagues in Health Affairs a really fascinating article describing how Costa Rica reformed their health system infrastructure in 1994. It's a really fascinating paper. I'll link to it on our website, and everyone should go read it. Yeah. Well, I've been I've been interested for a long time in Costa Rica, and, you know, this is the moment in the interview or maybe some people, you know, might snicker to themselves, of course, like who wouldn't want to go to Costa Rica and <laughs> it's a beautiful country and like beautiful rainforests and so we'll have everyone have their moment there. But all joking aside, um, you know, when I first went to Costa Rica and started reading about it, it, it quickly hit on, I, I quickly sort of realized that there is something going on there that goes way beyond 
the structural advantages that they've built for the health system. So, yes, they are a country that has decided they don't have or need an army, so they have high levels of health and social spending. They have high levels of social solidarity. They have really high levels of education and kind of an equity-based approach to public policy. But in, in none of those contextual statements do you actually hear why their primary care system itself is so successful. And when I say successful, I mean, you know, within 10 years of initiating reforms, you know, they increased access to primary health care from 25% to over 90%. Um, within seven years after reform, infant mortality dropped by 8%, adults mortality drops by 2%. I mean, these are population level statistics, and we go on and on for the rest of the podcast, that are just quite unusual. Hmm. And while certainly a, um, a helpful political and social context is part of the story, it's not all of the story, because also, you know, it's, Costa Rica is a middle-income country. It spends less than $1,000 per person per year on health, and it has a life expectancy that's the third best in America. Mm. Um, so something is going on there. And so we, we spent a couple of years um, embedded within and, you know, spending a lot of time within the health ministry and within what's called the CAHA, which is the um, the Social Security Fund that sort of runs uh, the health system and health financing there and with the primary care teams. And what we found is really there are four, there are four features of this successful system that not only are interesting in and of themselves, but actually have potential relevance to uh, other countries, including our own. And, and the first you touched upon, it's the idea that they um, integrated their public health ministry with their health financing and service delivery ministry. And that's very unusual. Usually countries keep them separate. We certainly have them separate here in the U.S., but what that allowed to happen is an integration not only of administrative personnel, but of focus, um, a focus on sort of these big, broad targets of human health, human capacity, um, and a focus on equity as a, huge, um, as a huge target that not only the public health sector had, but the health financing sector had. I mean, imagine if, if our health financing sector in the U.S. saw equity as its mandate. We right. would make very different decisions. Right. The second thing that they did is that they built multidisciplinary care teams um, uh, called EBAIS teams uh, embedded in each community, serving about 4,500 people in that community. And not just care teams for clinical care, but actually with community health workers that visit, regardless of how you're doing, and visit uh, uh, each household once, at least once a year. Um, and they integrate both the collection of clinical data and public health surveillance data and personal household need data. So they have these incredible abilities to sort of map need and, and inequity and where to sort of target their teams um, uh, based on that. And that kind of gets to the third part is that things are geographically impaneled, which means that every person has access to an EBAIS team no matter where they live, even in the most remote parts or, or in the most urban parts. And the fourth is that they have really um, reliable measurement and feedback loops so mm -hmm. that, you know, feed measurement is transmitted um, historically up until the last couple of years using standardized paper forms from the home visits to the clinics 
to the small health areas, to the health regions, to central and back. And, they, and, and there's a lot of performance monitoring on, on very clear performance targets. And in fact, those regions or health areas that have, um, are performing less well have actually not, they aren't punished per se, they're actually over-invested with more primary health care teams so that they can narrow equity gaps. So it's a really fascinating um, area to, uh, to study these kind of new dimensions of how to improve primary health care systems. I do think it sounds like uh, mentality about healthcare is so different if equity is among their primary goals. And I guess you don't need health insurance. Yeah, well, there is there is uh, a single payer for health insurance, and okay. but yes, there's a, there's a constitutional right to uh, financial access for healthcare. Hmm. So that makes certainly a big difference. Yeah. So, you know, within the contours of reality, <laughs> what do you think? You know, what one lesson is that we should take from Costa Rica and integrate into primary care reform in the United States that that you think, you know, could could be done? Ooh, uh, it's a great question. I mean, I think that I think that Costa Rica and other places teach us about something that we're starting to talk about but we we need to see more of in reality, which is teams that we that our teams are created, sustained paid for, trained, made vital throughout our primary health care system, that they include more than just, you know, a doctor and a nurse, but that they, that they start to include a variety of professions that really can impact health on many levels. And that we start to see the creation and sustainment of health as something that's not just a reactive process where we just sort of wait for which, whichever patients are on our schedule to come in and if they don't come in, well, you know, too bad. I'm not responsible for them. There is a proactive approach to population health management that we really, I think, would do well to to take on. And, you know, there's so much talk in the health Twitter sphere and health kind of policy landscape right now about everyone talks about population health and value and, you know, a couple of other buzzwords. But if you really want to start talking about population health, you get to a point very quickly where you have to move your focus from just widget counting and visit counting and who's on my schedule and E&M coding and open up the space to be paid for and trained for looking outside your clinic walls, looking at the social determinants of health in your community, looking at an outreach-focused community partnership-centered model of health co-creation that quite frankly, is incredibly exciting and is also, I think, daunting to a lot of people in our profession who it's, it's already hard enough to be a primary care clinician, mm-hmm. but now you're asking us to be a primary care public health warrior. And that's maybe, <laughs> that's a lot. And, and I agree, that's a, big, that's a big shift. But places like Costa Rica and others say that given time, resources, and a relentless focus on improving people's health and sort of focus on the big problems and, you know, change holistically together, you can actually really start to move the needle on, on the dial of some of these big ticket items that, that matter a lot to people while you also provide, you know, great relationship-based primary care. Asaf Bidan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. 
Director of View of Systems, a podcast featuring conversations about the changing healthcare landscape from the Harvard Center for Primary Care. I'm Audrey Provenzano. Check our website, www.primarycare.hms.harvard.edu, and click on Our West Podcast at the top to learn more about us off and see an archive of our old shows and links to some of the papers we talked about today. We love to hear from our listeners, so please tweet us at ROS Podcast or at HMS Primary Care, or send us an email with comments and suggestions at contact at ROSPod.org. Thanks for listening.